Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's November the 10th, 2021. It's lunchtime in San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. And I have some news for you. Um, the women are up to something, or at least the women were up to something. That at least is the opinion of my guest today, who has a new book out appropriately called uh, The Women Are Up to Something. Um, his name is Benjamin J.B. Litzkum, and he is joining us from uh, Western New York, uh, which means not New York City. Uh, ben, uh, welcome to Keen On. Uh, your new book, The Women Are Up to Something, is really uh, about a period in the middle of the 20th century when four women were up to something. It's an intriguing title. I love the title of the book, and, and the theme of the book is also very interesting. Um, who are these women that you write about in your new book? Sure. Uh, it's great to be on here, uh, Andrew. And the uh, these are four daughters of the baby boom that came right after the First World War. And so they all go up to Oxford together. Well, hold uh, on, Ben. Let, let's be clear. When you mm -hmm. say baby boom, people think of the 1960s. You're talking about the 1930s, right? I'm thinking about the, when people came home in 1919, 1920, and there was a modest boom there. And they did all... They think, but by the way, I, I, sorry to keep on interrupting. Um, did they refer to themselves as baby boomers or that's uh, a, a post-Second no. World War term? No, this is uh, just my describing the demographics. Okay, so so these were daughters of people daughters who came home from the First World War. Yes, and all of them consequently are university age. Uh, right as the Second World War is beginning. And this opens a window for them that might have been closed a few years earlier, that uh, they all go to Oxford together because they're bright and ambitious, and that was the one top-flight place where a British woman could get a degree, not just an education. Cambridge didn't start giving those until uh, 1948. They go to Oxford, and almost immediately the men are called away to war. And they've got the place, well, not to themselves, but certainly they have many fewer people talking over them than they would have had a few years previously. And all of them end up finding their voice as scholars, as philosophers, and the, they spend the rest of their lives uh, disrupting an orthodoxy and ethics that their male peers, their male contemporaries went in for. Uh, it's a very interesting period. So these four women, and we're going to identify them in a minute, Ben, they all went up to Oxford in the late 1930s, early 40s. This was a period of enormous intellectual ferment. Yes. The four women are all philosophers, but there was a broader ferment going on, wasn't there, in the, in the late 30s, indeed throughout the 1930s? Oh, yes. Uh, and it's one of the things that led them to revolt against the approach to ethics that their male contemporaries went in for. You've got the Spanish Civil War, you've got Stalin, some people enthusiastic about what he's doing, some people horrified, and the drumbeat of Hitler's preparations uh, for war. 
And a whole generation is on edge, feeling like they're coming up uh, to a precipice. And at the same time, the prevalent philosophical view about ethics was that it was a subject without an object, that it was just the personal preferences of each individual. Well, let's, before we, before, Ben, before we get to philosophy and ethics, mm-hmm. let's talk about the broader intellectual currents of the 1930s. Of course, it was a period of Bertrand Russell, George Orwell. Who were the dominant intellectual figures in uh, Britain and particularly Oxford in the 1930s? Oh, in the 1930s. Well, uh, the proponent uh, of... The ethical view that I'm talking about is A.J. Eyre, who is actually a kind of superstar already as a young man. The great uh, A.J. Eyre, yes, otherwise Freddie. known as Freddie Eyre, who um, yeah. I don't know if you're, you're familiar with um, this fact, uh, Ben. A.J. Eyre was a prominent uh, supporter of my uh, football club, Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. So he's always been a personal hero of mine. And he was quite a, quite a character, wasn't he, A.J. Eyre? Oh, he was. There are so many stories uh, about him. But he writes a philosophical bestseller, which is not a common thing. Uh, His language, Truth and Logic, is a sensation in both the popular and the academic press. And uh, so there's him. But as you say, there's also Orwell and uh, there's Toynbee. He didn't go to university. Instead of going to university, went to uh, Burma and then to Spain. So... Mm -hmm. And what about uh, Russell, who was the the giant uh, of, of of English philosophy even then, right? Yes, I mean the sensation around Russell's work uh, dates a little bit earlier, the time when Wittgenstein uh, right. goes and studies with him. Uh, he does some of the work for which he's most famous in philosophical circles in the 19 aughts, the 19 teens, but he's still the Dean of Philosophy at Cambridge. And Cambridge had been more dominant. Oxford was just on the rise with people like Ayer and Isaiah Berlin and- Right, I forgot about Berlin, which uh, one shouldn't. Would it be fair to say though that Berlin was more of an intellectual historian than a philosopher? That's certainly how he would have thought of himself. He hangs around with a group of philosophers uh, who are testing and sharpening one another. They call themselves the Brethren. It's a very telling uh, label for themselves. It was a boys club, but uh, Berlin was part of that. But yeah, under the influence of the style of philosophy that Ayer and Austin kick off, Berlin came to feel anxiety about whether he was really a philosopher. I would say he was, but... uh, he didn't think of what he did in those terms because philosophy in that time and place meant this very particular thing that some of his peers did. Yeah, my old friend uh, Michael Ignatiev has been on this show, of course, wrote a wonderful biography of um, um, uh, of, uh, uh, of Berlin. Um, mm-hmm. I think also would have considered him a philosopher. Yes. Uh, so we have this Oxford of the 1930s. Was, of course, it was also a breeding ground for Soviet spies, wasn't it? It was. I know less about that than you might. but uh, Well, I think the, you know more. I think, Ben, you know more than me about everything, especially anything related to Oxford in the 1930s. But it was certainly a hotbed of 
Soviet sympathizers of Bolshevism, of some even Stalinist fellow travelers, even within philosophical circles. Is that fair? I'd say leftism, especially. Mary Midgley, one of the four women uh, that I've written about, uh, remarks in her memoir that at the time, the only question among the students was, how far left are you going to go? And so there is Labor Party activism, there's communism of a more restrained sort, and then there's uh, really, really uh, radical communism, the kind that Iris Murdoch, uh, another one of my students. So, so, so far, we, we haven't really mentioned women. You know, the title mm-hmm. of your book is the women, is up, uh, uh, the women Are Up to Something. Yes. And this is a book about female philosophers, um, four female philosophers in particular, who resurrected ethics. Uh, but before we get to these four women, what was historically the role of women in the history of philosophy? Isolated figures here and there. Um, you've got these legendary figures like Hypatia, and uh, the woman that Socrates talks about in one of Plato's dialogues as his teacher, uh, yeah. But then, well, who's literate so as to be able to engage with high-level intellectual conversations? Well, in some, uh, in some eras, uh, in some generations, it's a few uh, members of the aristocracy. So you've got the Princess Elizabeth of Bohemia corresponding with Descartes, uh, and others, but it's these rare cases, and that persists right up to the 20th century, that there's a handful of isolated figures like Dorothy Emmett and Martha Neal um, in the generations uh, leading up to my subjects, but never a cluster, never a cohort, a cadre of women all at the same time. And at least in the English-speaking world, that's partly due to education and prejudice. The, the I mean, that was a. Re- I mean, I mean, a rent started doing. I mean, again, I don't know whether you call a rent. I think now she would be yeah. considered a philosopher. Mm-hmm. I guess she wasn't doing much philosophy in the 1930s, but certainly she emerged as one of the great giants—not yeah. just a, a female giant, but a giant of European philosophy—in mm-hmm. uh, the 1940s and then in the 50s in the United States. Right. Yeah. Um, But I would say, in the Anglophone world at least, there's a pathway, well, say in the British world, there's a pathway that philosophers followed. They typically did the classics curriculum. And for that, you need to have had Greek and Latin in your primary and secondary schooling. And women mostly hadn't had it, that women's schools uh, were not strong in this area. And so you get up to university age and you don't have the preparation that might lead you into the course of study that would make people look at you as a prospective philosopher. And you just don't have any models in front of you, isolated figures, but not people to look to as people who have done this thing that you might model yourself off of. Although that was probably true in many disciplines. Uh, we've, we've done shows on the history of art. Uh, we had a, a wonderful show recently about female artists and female self-representation. Yeah. Female scientists, uh, female mm-hmm. certainly female computer scientists. Although we had Jeanette Winterton on the show recently, huh. uh, and we talked about some very prominent figures, uh, female figures in the invention of, of computer science. So let's talk a little bit about ethics 
Ben. Uh, what is it? I, I've always been confused by that term because, of course, for lay people watching this, non-philosophers like myself, you're a formal, you're a professional philosopher, but we all associate the word ethics with the distinction between good and bad. And we yeah. all think of ethics in terms of ethical people or unethical people. Mm-hmm. How would you define ethics as um, uh, as a discipline in, 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 in philosophy? Hmm. It's reflection most directly on how one ought to live. Socrates asks this question, uh, as Bernard Williams puts it. And uh, this is the question, I think, at the heart of it. And then it generates uh, other sorts of secondary inquiries. You know, what do these words mean? What kind of epistemology? How do we find out what we find out about this? But at its heart, it's the question that every human being has of what am I going to do with my life? How ought I to behave myself? Would it be fair to say at this point there was this very sharp split between the European tradition and the Anglo-American tradition, the Anglo-American traditions very much influenced by by Wittgenstein, mm-hmm. um, focusing on language, whereas mm-hmm. the European tradition, uh, which I guess in some ways is, uh, which, which Arendt pursued, um, much more interested in existentialism. Mm-hmm. Um, is that fair? Yes, it is. That split is emerging in the first half of the 20th century, that uh, that's about the moment, around 1900, a little after 1900, when these two streams go off in different directions and you have the Husserl, Heidegger, uh, yes. phenomenological stream going And Arendt, way. of course, was Heidegger's girlfriend yeah. and very influenced by him. Okay, okay, so let's get to your four women. We've mm-hmm. done a, too much circling around, Ben. These four women all come up to Oxford. Let's briefly uh, underline who they are. The first is G.E.M. Anscombe. Mm-hmm. The second is Philippa Foote. The third is Mary Midgley. These are all three professional philosophers. And the fourth, who probably be the most familiar for a general audience, is Iris Murdoch. So do they all go up to Oxford at about the same time? Yes, within a couple of years. Anscombe goes up one year earlier, even though she and Midgley and Murdoch are all born 1919, all the same age. Foote's one year younger. Um, but Anscombe had had a uh, classical languages teacher uh, as a mother. And so she was reading Greek in the original before she went up uh, to university. So she started a year earlier. Murdoch and Midgley had some coaching before they went up. And then uh, the following year, Philippa Foote, uh, who also took some coaching before going to Oxford, started. But the first three did a four-year degree, greats, and uh, uh, Foote did a three-year degree, uh, philosophy, politics, and economics. So they overlap uh, for two or three years, uh, depending on uh, which ones you're talking about. And they all become acquainted already as undergraduates. And of course, they all are women. How explicitly or implicitly feminist were they? Was feminism baked into their philosophy to their uh, rewriting of ethics, or was it just implicit? Chiefly implicit, that uh, this is a generational thing that I've noticed reading about them, uh, reading their works and their comments, that uh, they were 
mostly not keen on being identified as women philosophers. Philippa Foote uh, writes to Peter Conradi once, uh, Iris Murdoch's biographer, in connection with uh, Conradi's work on, uh, on Murdoch's biography. And he'd said something about this group of women philosophers. And she says, do we have to be women philosophers? Uh, can't you describe us as members of a generation? Uh, a little later on, when she was starting to become famous in the 60s and getting lecture invites all over the place, she would be introduced as the first woman to give this lecture, the first woman to do this or that. And she thought, well, that's strange. I'd rather be introduced as from North Yorkshire uh, or something. So a little uncomfortable being boxed in that way, but definitely marked among their peers in this way, things that they were included in, not included in, on the basis of sex. And I think, I don't know how far I want to push this, but I think there is something feminist about the approach to ethics they did champion. Well, I want to get into those ethics after the break. Um, the Women Are Up to Something by uh, Benjamin J.B. Lipscomb is a really interesting narrative of these four revolutionary women. The subtitle of the book is How Elizabeth Anscombe, Philippa Foote, Mary Midgley, and Iris Murdoch Revolutionized Ethics. But before we get into how they indeed did revolutionize ethics, uh, let's take a break for a minute. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live. Uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back with uh, Benjamin J.B. Lipscomb, the um, author of a really interesting new book, The Women Are Up to Something, and what they're up to is revolutionizing ethics. So, Ben, let's get into it. The heart of the book. How did these four women revolutionize ethics? Sure. Um, 
there's a dogma in orthodoxy that has a hold on virtually all of the male peers and colleagues of these women at the start of their careers. It's an orthodoxy that they're exposed to as undergraduates, but it predates them. It's got roots uh, going back into the early modern period. It's the view that facts and values are nothing to do with one another, uh, that there's a dichotomy there, that you can't draw any inferences about what is good or bad, right or wrong from the facts, uh, that our evaluative attitudes, our judgments about uh, what to do, uh, what to value in ethics are just kind of personal preferences, uh, projections onto the world. And to all of these women, that seemed wrong. It took them quite a while to find the vocabulary, to find the concepts with which to express an alternative. But that was their work from pretty early on in their career to say, no, there's something wrong about this thing that all of our male peers seem to think. Uh, that can't be right. Philippa Foote uh, told this story about the moment that she came to this thought. She was seeing the uh, newsreels in the cinema in 1945 of the liberation of the Bergen-Belsen and Buchenwald camps. And she sat there watching this horrified, walked out in shock like lots of people did uh, from those newsreels. And she thought, there's got to be some way to say that Hitler was making a terrible, tragic mistake, that he was getting something objectively wrong. Uh, I won't settle for the idea that he was just different in what he cared about from what I am. Are you saying then that male philosophers were unwilling to attach ethical labels to Hitler or to the concentration camps? At the level of metaphysics, they wanted to say this is unreal. Uh, and there's a kind of what aura. What do you mean unreal? I, I don't understand that word. That these are projections of ours. We can stand for them. We can commit ourselves to them, but they're just ours. They don't have any standing uh, or authority beyond us. There's nothing here to get right or wrong. So all moral judgments are just moral judgments for each of us and that we can't judge other people's moral morality. Is that what you're saying? We could resist their judgments, but we couldn't say that one of us is mistaken and the other one wasn't. Yeah, that's mistaken right. Mistaken meaning being unethical or wrong or inappropriate. Wrong. Getting it wrong. Yeah. In the way what that you. What does that mean? Getting. I mean, how is hmm. killing millions of people getting it wrong? It's just bad. It's not getting it wrong. That could you have a correct attitude or an incorrect attitude toward it? Could you be, could you make a judgment that was the wrong judgment in the sense of untrue? And this was, would it be fair to say that this is the ethical or the, 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 the non-ethical element in logical positivism? That's correct. Yeah, exactly. So it was, it was philosophy's flight from ethics, which of course... Hadn't always been the case. I mean, the, the Greeks, no. were, Plato, for example, of course, was a, for better or worse, was a highly ethical thinker. So so who can we blame? We can't blame AJA. It was a Spurs fan. No. Um, was it Locke and the, the, the founding fathers of empirical philosophy? You've got a movement 
uh, in lock and preceding lock of, it goes with the modern scientific revolution, which presents the world as inert matter in motion. And from that moment forward, there's a bit of a puzzle. We think we're describing the world completely, describing everything true by talking about these bits of matter bouncing off one another, attracting one another, a merely physical world, which makes everything that doesn't belong within uh, physics uh, seem unreal. And there's a certain kind of, not every man goes in for this, but there's a certain kind of toughness a congratulating oneself on facing the bleakness of this picture that a lot of guys, uh, not just Ayer, but a number of his contemporaries and predecessors go in for. Ben, the resistance, the resistance to the, the Freddy Ayers of the world, they could have gone to Paris, they could have read Camus or Sartre, mm -hmm. they could have ended up in Berlin, of course, although in the 1930s it wasn't the right place to go. Are you saying these three, the, these four women, rather than reading Camus or Sartre or uh, Heidegger for that matter, they establish an Anglo tradition of ethics? Is that their main contribution? Their contribution is first just to break the sense of inevitability around this orthodoxy. And interestingly, they are some of them reading the French and German thinkers, particularly Iris Murdoch is reading the French yes, existentialists. And what strikes her is that it wouldn't have been any help looking to Sartre because what Ayer is saying and what Sartre is saying are remarkably alike. And her great contribution to the kind of shared project she has with her friends is to see this, to see that there's something zeitgeisty here that goes beyond the peculiarities of the conversation in one time and place, that there's something about the late modern period that encourages this facts versus values picture that uh, they need to break out of. But yeah, they're looking to articulate an alternative to it. Of these four women, Anscombe, Foot, Midgley, Murdoch, who was the intellectual leader? Was there somebody who pioneered this thinking it, from, from from reading your book it seems as if Anscombe is in in intellectual terms is perhaps the most remarkable or perhaps I'm, I'm being unfair to the others she is the most philosophically powerful mind of this foursome absolutely and the others all regard her with a bit of awe um what she does is partial that Murdoch has the kind of imaginative range and breadth of reading that lets her see connections across traditions and to do some things that Anscombe wouldn't have done. Well, Mary Murdoch, of course, wrote philosophical novels that were bestsellers. And yes. I think many of our viewers, most of them will be familiar with Murdoch and many of them will have read her books, which are um, fictional narratives built mm -hmm. in some ways around philosophical themes. Yes. And Foote, who was Anscombe's colleague at Somerville College, Oxford, and who looked to her as a mentor, uh, she carries Anscombe's critique within uh, philosophical circles further than Anscombe herself does. Uh, Mary Midgley, for her part, 
is the one who knows enough biology to really think concretely and positively about what it would mean to bring ethics and biology together uh, in the end. And so each of them does something that none of the other three does. But if you want to ask who is the most awe-striking as a philosophical mind, it's Anscombe. How are they relevant today? I was doing a little bit of reading about Foote. She invented the idea of the the philosophical idea of the trolley problem, which is particularly relevant in our age of AI. Uh, yeah. I don't know how many people are familiar with the trolley problem, but if you have a, a self-driving trolley driving towards a group of people, do you let that trolley run over, what is it, one baby versus 15 old people? Um, whether or not you think that's <laughs> philosophically convincing, certainly the trolley problem is as, is, is as relevant today in our age of AI as ever. What else do these women contribute to early 21st century philosophy and indeed society? Yeah, I mean, lots of things, but it's um, the most famous contributions are going to be individual ones that we could look to each of them for. Anscombe, for instance, we were just talking about, she more or less revives uh, thinking philosophical thinking about the ethics of warfare that... She famously protests an honorary degree for Harry Truman uh, from Oxford, standing almost alone against her colleagues who were embarrassed that she was doing this. But in the pamphlet she published about that and some other writings afterward, she gets philosophers and those outside the academy to start paying attention to the traditional principles of just war thinking and revives that conversation. Uh, people have been ignoring it. And, and I assume her opposition to Truman was because of his decision to, uh, to, 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 to drop two nuclear weapons on, on Japan. Exactly. She regarded it as mass murder. She said, you're attacking the innocent as a means to your ends. That's what murder is. And is that uh, one of the core areas of her revival of ethics, Anscombe's? It's what she was most interested in, in ethics, that she felt the need to clear away this view about facts and values and that dichotomy because there were some things she particularly wanted to say about killing uh, in the late modern period that were at the center of her concerns, that she was horrified that people were excusing Truman, were justifying uh, what he'd done. And she thought something's deeply, sickly wrong here I need to create a framework in which people can understand that. Without wishing to be too prurient, Ben, um, uh, Iris Murdoch's private life was notorious, especially when she was a younger woman for her mm. sexual activity. Um, what about the private lives of these women? Uh, were they classic Oxford doms? Uh, sitting in their, uh, their rooms at, at night reading Plato? Or were they up? in each other's bedrooms. Well, the classic Oxford Don uh, was doing both, I think, like AJA, right? And uh, actually the first uh, woman to be a fellow of an Oxford college and married uh, was Martha Neal just before these women went up to Oxford. It's remarkable how late that changes. Um, they all are lively personalities. Um, to use, a, uh, all, to use a philosophical euphemism. All of them are uh, are married for uh, part of their lives. Philip Foote's divorced in 1959. 
Um, Mary Midgley has this uh, quite conventional domestic life. Uh, she steps away from philosophy during the 1950s. That's when she's reading all this biology, all this animal behavior stuff, um, because she's raising her boys and observing the animal behavior on the hearth rug, uh, as she put it. Um, and Anscombe uh, practiced what uh, Bernard Williams called telegamy, uh, that she and her husband taught in different universities. They had seven children between them, uh, but uh, lived in different cities and uh, children would go back and forth and they'd be together on, uh, on breaks. And what about Murdoch? Uh, as I said, uh, she had yeah. uh, lot, many, many stories about Murdoch's um, mm -hmm. She was highly active sexually, wasn't she? Both, uh, both as a homosexual, um, and in terms of her various marriages. Yeah, there's uh, there's a great story from when Foote and Murdoch were living together during the war, and uh, one evening Murdoch said, "Let's list for one another all of the men who have proposed marriage to us." And Foote went first and had this short little list, but you know it was a list. And Murdoch went on and on and on and foot finally said uh, a little testily maybe we should start with the ones who haven't proposed to you there was something magnetic about her the energy and attention that she gave to anyone she was with caused people to fall in love with her men and women um i think she first became interested in women looking at her journals and uh, letters and other evidence uh, in the 1940s and 50s, it was mostly men with some women uh, for her. And she was always looking for people. Wasn't she in love with Anscombe for a while or at least obsessed with Anscombe? I, I think she was for a while, yes, in the late 1940s. Uh, we've got evidence of that. That for her, intellectual admiration and erotic attraction were deeply, complexly mixed up. And so anyone that she looked up to intellectually the Nobel laureate Elias Canetti, uh, her undergraduate tutor, Donald McKinnon, Anscombe. These are all people that she's going to be attracted to. And then it's it's different in different cases how far that goes. What was their opinion of European female philosophers? Simone uh, Weil, for example, who mm. now has a great reputation, or of course, Simone de Beauvoir, Jean-Paul mm. Sartre's uh, girlfriend uh, and the author uh, of a, an incredibly important feminist uh, tract in, what is it, in yeah. the 1950s. Murdoch is the one who's paying the most attention, uh, as I said before, to continental figures. She's the one who wants to be part of the international intellectual and writerly scene. She goes to Brussels with the UNRRA, Relief and Resettlement uh, Agency uh, of the UN, right after the war and gets to meet Sartre and is reading everything she can get her hands on uh, coming out of the French intellectual scene, uh, Francophile, uh, Francophone uh, intellectual scene. And uh, she's very impressed with de Beauvoir and extremely influenced uh, by Simone Weil, yes. Well, what do you think these women, if they were around today, would think of our ethical and philosophical preoccupation with sexuality and gender? Good question. As I say, there was some resistance of some of them to being pegged uh, as women philosophers. Mary Midgley is the one who reflects on this the most explicitly. And she thinks in terms of sexual difference. Uh, 
in a way that is uh, controversial uh, today. She's got a book that she co-authors with a colleague, uh, Judith Hughes, uh, uh, called Women's Choices. But it seemed to her that uh, women's experience as bearers of children, uh, women's experiences, uh, and she thinks women's minds uh, operate uh, distinctively. She has this passage where she says that Virginia Woolf is a different kind of writer from the men of her generation. And she thinks this is to do with Woolf being a woman, the way that she keeps everything in view at once. I don't know whether I concur, but Midgley is the one who's thinking explicitly about that. And it comes from her being, I think, extremely interested in animal behavior studies, that she's reading Conrad, Conrad Lorenz and Nicholas Tinberg and, and Jane Goodall. Mm, and I, I hadn't thought about Virginia Woolf, but obviously another towering figure of this time. Yeah. Do you think and, she'd approve of you doing this book, Ben? Do you think she'd say that a, a man can do justice to these two these, these four great fe um, female philosophers and writers and thinkers? It's a thing I've wondered about whether uh, uh, whether I can get the insight that I need uh, for the book. Had to uh, rely a lot on colleagues in philosophy and women outside uh, philosophy to read with me and think with me about the conclusions that I'm coming to. I know Midgley approved uh, because uh, we became friends. Uh, in the decade before her death in 2018. And she showed me a wealth of things uh, that uh, were uh, terribly useful to me in the writing. Well, it's definitely a very interesting book. The Women Are Up to Something, How Elizabeth Anscombe, Philippa Foote, Mary Midgley, and Iris Murdoch Revolutionized Ethics. Anyone who's interested in philosophy and particularly mid-20th century philosophy, I think it's a must-read. Congratulations, Ben, on the book. Um, what if people need to read the book? But what else of Anscombe and, and particularly Murdoch and, and Foote and Midgley should people read to understand these women? What what mm. texts would you suggest? Would you suggest what's your favorite Murdoch novel, for example? What's oh, the or, or shall we? Let me rephrase the question. What is the Murdoch novel that best captures her philosophy? Hmm. There are two or three, but the ones that I think uh, people turn to most and that I have to recommend for people starting out are uh, The Bell, which is early on. Yeah. And uh, the one that wondered the Booker, The Sea, The Sea. Uh, both of them, especially The Sea, The Sea, show this theme that's constantly recurring in her fiction that connects up to the biographical point we were making earlier, that Murdoch was aware of herself as someone who could obsess about people, who could put them on a pedestal and worship them intellectually and sexually. And in a lot of Murdoch novels, there's a kind of a mage figure uh, that one of the characters is dominated by, obsessed with, and needs to get free of. Uh, and she is one of our great novelists of personal obsessions that occlude our relations to others and include our growth as persons. So yeah. uh, certainly growing up in England, uh, Murdoch was essential reading and those books in particular. 
Benjamin J.B. Lipscomb, again, congratulations on this new book with this wonderful title, The Women Are Up to Something. They certainly were in the 1940s, and you do a very good job explaining and describing what they did in terms of revolutionizing and rewriting uh, the idea, the, the philosophical idea of ethics. Congratulations on the book, Ben. And I hope you're working on something else. You'll have to come back on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms, all major podcast platforms carry the keen on show or you can also watch live uh, on my twitter page uh, my linkedin network uh, or on lit hub's uh, facebook live page um, i also hope you'll decide to follow me on substack uh, i have uh, a newsletter on substack in which i develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, keen on show and I hope you'll also follow up with me personally uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows you might email me at a.keen at me.com or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests I'm very open uh, very eager in fact to have requests ideas of, of people with interesting new books and projects which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keen On. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not too distant future.